really about a partnership and how to grow and expand. And it's so much more just about others and the contributions that we can make. But going back to then, I really still only knew about me. It, mm -hmm. You know, I had grown up kind of taking care of myself, you know, since I was 17, I moved to Los Angeles by myself. So I was really kind of just focused on me, 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 me. What do I want to do? What what, uh, where can I go? I have to only depend on me. And then the thirties came and now I'm married and then I have two kids. So I'm figuring out motherhood. I end up trading in my career to trade up to this empire thing that panned out fortunately. Um, so the thirties was, a it was, was, was difficult in the sense that it, that it was a growth and a learning, but now in my forties, uh, <laughs> I have, I have, the grant thing in our empire. My kids are now seven and nine years old, so they don't require so much attention. So now I feel like I know this world. It's not a learning thing for me anymore. I've learned so much how to do this that now this hand is free to, to start painting and letting people in. Hey mamas, welcome to the Being Mother Hustler podcast. I'm your host mother hustler, Kareen Mills. I'm a mama of two boys, founder of a tribe called Mother Hustler Nation, co-founder of the Game Changers Global Network, an insurance professional turned lifestyle entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and author. Each and every week, I'm bringing you stories and thoughts from mom entrepreneurs who will inspire you to take massive, imperfect action, unapologetically chase your dreams, and eradicate your excuses so you can quit treating your business like a hobby and turn your side hustle into full-time income. I know being mother hustler is not easy, but sisters, we are making it happen even in this beautiful mess. Thank you so much for being present with me today. Now let's go mother the world. Elena Cardone started her career in Hollywood and soon became a successful actress and model of TV and film fame. She's a lifelong competitive sports shooter, now an author, businesswoman, empire builder, and visionary. Elena currently hosts the Women in Power show and co-hosts the g &E show with her husband, The Grant Cardone, best-selling author, entrepreneur, and real estate investor. Together, this dynamite duo have created an impressive real estate portfolio of almost $1 billion. Elena was born in Spain and was raised in New Orleans. This 2004 Maxim Magazine's hottest 100 beauty now spends her time serving as chief family officer, public speaker, and personal development coach, teaching others the strategies and techniques on how to create, build, and expand their personal empires everywhere. She's an avid human rights activist, fierce supporter of the Second Amendment, and busy philanthropist. Elena campaigns cross-country tirelessly. Elena has been happily married 
since 2004, July 4th to be exact, and the fireworks, she said, have never stopped. And she lives with her husband, Grant, and their two daughters, Sabrina and Scarlett, in Miami Beach. Mother hustlers, ladies and gentlemen, please help me in welcoming the mother hustler mothering the world this week on our first year ever anniversary of the Being Mother Hustler podcast, 10x first lady, best-selling author, host of the GNE show, and host of the Women in Power, Mrs. Elena Cardone. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to the Being Mother Hustler podcast. And I am so super pumped because we have the one and the only Mother Hustler building an empire over there in Miami. Oh, yeah. Elena Cardone. Welcome, Elena. Oh, thanks so much for having me on your show. I love the name. Love Thank it. you, sister. Well, I've been following you since you did, you had like, since pretty much you've been uh, Grant's wife, right? But now you are, you're killing it. You're on your own. You're supporting and uplifting your hubby back in the days. I've been following you since you had 2000 and now you're like a couple hundred thousand following. Yeah. yeah. I remember when you would do a film something when you were just starting. It's amazing what growth you've really put into yourself and I, I really appreciate that. You know, my, my, uh, since the, since you've been following us for so long, you know, the beginning when we, we, we married when I was 30. So my thirties, uh, was a completely bizarre era for me. I was figuring out what it meant to be in a marriage and a relationship. Um, and I learned that it was so much more than just a monogamous commitment to one another, which is all that I really thought it was when I actually did agree to be married. Um, <clears throat> but now I've learned that it's really about a partnership and how to grow and expand. And it's so much more just about others and the contributions that we can make. But going back to then, I really still only knew about me. It, mm -hmm. You know, I had grown up kind of taking care of myself you know, since I was 17, I moved to Los Angeles by myself. So I was really kind of just focused on me, 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 me. What do I want to do? What, what, uh, where can I go? I have to only depend on me. And then the thirties came and now I'm married and then I have two kids. So I'm figuring out motherhood. I end up trading in my career to trade up to this empire thing that panned out, fortunately. Um, so the thirties was a, it was, was, was difficult in the sense that it, that, it was a growth and a learning, but now in my forties, uh, I have, I have the grant thing in our empire. My kids are now seven and nine years old, so they don't require so much attention. So now I feel like I know this world. It's not a learning thing for me anymore. I've learned so much how to do this, that now this hand is free to to start painting and letting people in to see what I did to help contribute to that, to help fast track their way to success. So now that I have this up and running, it's fun and I'm glad that you've noticed that now I'm really starting to brand out on my own uh, with the 
um, intention of all funnels coming back into the fold as us as a couple. It's not just how it was once, just me in my 20s leaving anyone else behind. It's really an integration now on how to get more people into our empire. So I'm glad you noticed and thank you very much for that acknowledgement. Yeah, I love how you talk about integration and how you talk about having your left hand being free now. Uh, because as a mom, and you want to be a good mom, and oh. you also want to be a great professional yes. and, and change the world and impact the world. But I think you're doing such a phenomenal job that you're not only impacting the world, because I heard you made over 30,000 people cry at the 10X. <laughs> <laughs> that astounds me every time I hear that. Speech that you, you just did. And your kids are just stepping into their own identity as an entrepreneur, as learning and being a model to your, to your children. Yeah. And it gives permission to a lot of us women that although there's always a woman behind every man's success, but that woman can also chase her own success. Right. And vice versa. I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't be where I'm at without having someone with equal magnitude as mine pushing me encouraging me and supporting me along the way. And, um, you know, for, for all the moms out there, I would just love to bring back this notion of the importance of motherhood. Um, I think that we in society have sort of downgraded our position or made it like, um, kind of like, yeah, I'm just a mom. Yeah. Rather yeah. Than, like I would just, it would be a glorious day for me when all the people of the world were like, you're a mom, like, like a real mom, <laughs> one that takes pride and is interested in raising a, a healthy, productive, contributing member into society, like, and that's going to flourish and prosper and help the next generation. To me, that's the most valuable position there is on the planet. It's more powerful than any position I could hold as an executive or as a business person or whatever. And the reason I know that, it, and, and every mother or father knows this, is you would trade it all in in a heartbeat if your kid needed you to or you, they were sick or whatever. You would, you would give your life for the child. So motherhood and the people that take that position and hold pride in it and, um, and, and admiration for the position, just, ah, oh, I'd love to see that day come back. Well, I love that you said that because, so the, the vision that I have for the podcast is to mother the world. And I think that to, it's, it's, a, it's a play on to change the world. Mm -hmm. I think that to raise impactful men and impactful people to impact the world is you have to mother, there's no right or wrong way to mother, right? we just do our very best as a mom we all do yeah. so did our well, mom I mean, yeah i mean i think there's a wrong way to I, I think there there's there can be unfortunately a wrong way to mother i think but but i think i agree with you as a general statement take a healthy sane woman who uh who is a mother yes they are definitely just trying to do the best with what they've been given and how they were raised and how they were taught. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. So talk about your childhood, because I know that 
there's a lot of correlation and the drive that we have as an adult. How was your childhood, if that's okay with you? Yeah, my childhood uh, up until the age of 14, actually, was, uh, was fairly, there were no problems. Little problem in nursery school. There, there was a little abuse there, some physical abuse there. Um, but, you know, back in the day, I think kids were a little more roughed up than they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents, you know, they, they were, I grew up in a loving in, environment. My, my parents were both monogamous. They didn't drink. They didn't do drugs. I didn't witness them fighting in front of one another. The only thing I witnessed as a child was that we were always, always under this constant pressure of uh, not having enough money to say, save, cut the lights out, kind of eat your food mentality, um, not being able, looking at the price on everything, having to put things back. Uh, so, I mean, which, which was normal. Everyone was kind of raised at least around me in the same way. Um, so, but I mean, I played sports. I, I was a major daddy's girl. Like he wanted two boys, he got two girls, he made do with me, I was the youngest. I was very happy to, to, to fulfill that role. I was like, I mean, he was just like my best friend, my, my, my champion. So I did wow. baseball, football. I mean, when, when kids were young enough to compete with boys, not, not after the age of 10, 11, then, then I just got dominated by, by boys as they got stronger and stuff. But when I was seven, eight, nine, and we could play kickball in the streets and throw footballs and tackle, um, I destroyed the guys. You know? <laughs> so, so that's how I grew up. Very competitive. Very competitive. I still am very competitive. Amazing. How did you end up in, in becoming an actor? And you were doing modeling too. Right? Uh, well, my father always wanted to be a radio star. Um, you know, he was a lot older. He's passed away now. But he's, he fought in World War II, just to give you an idea. So he grew up in that depression. So he, that was the radio era back then. So he wanted this. I don't know if it's in my blood, but we used to watch these TV shows and we would act them out with each other and we would be so dramatic. It was just a world of fun and play and create. And, and so he kind of uh, encouraged that from me, I think, because he, um, he had never developed that for himself. So when, when he saw that I had an interest in it, he really kind of pushed me to go in that direction. And then it sort of became something I just fell on as, 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 as my kind of saving grace or my out. I went to a very um, rough high school, um, a public high school. So I, I did my ninth grade uh, the whole day I spent there. Then I found out about the school called NOCA, the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. My sister told me about it. You could either go for writing, art, dance, acting, or a musical instrument. And since I had zero talent in anything else, I tried out for the acting department and made it in. But that was my escape from the public rough school. So then 10th, 11th, and 12th, I only had to spend three hours a day at the rough school. Then I drove myself to the other school where I had arts for the rest of the day. I did acting for the rest of the day, which was like play. So then at 17, um, I had become kind of a wild child from 14 to 17, kind of uh, lost myself, if you want to say that. 
and I was really looking to escape New Orleans at 17, and that's when I went to Los Angeles and tried to do the modeling and the acting thing. Um, but again, that was the only thing I knew how to do or wanted to try to do to escape New Orleans. So I always had that avenue of, that was really the only thing to get me somewhere other than where I was. So then I moved to Los Angeles at 17, didn't know anybody, but didn't care. I was so wild and brave back then. Now it's how I look back and I'm like, damn, that's impressive. But back then it was no big deal. If um, your kids did that, you're probably like, no, heck no. Oh my gosh, I know. My parents sat me down. They didn't want me to leave. They, were, they said, oh, we're worried you're going to get peer pressured by those Hollywood types. And, and that's when I sat them down and said, <laughs> Ah, uh, nobody can really peer pressure me. I've kind of been there, done that. I'm actually leaving to go make a better life for myself. So I can't really be peer pressured to be cool because I'm over that phase. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And actually that kind of brought him some sort of comfort to, to realize that I was actually going there uh, to make better of myself. And, and then I did, you know, it wasn't perfect. I, I, I didn't just kind of clean up overnight, but overall I did a good job. Wow. I, I heard Grant talk about some drug addiction on his interview with London Real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you both are from the South, right? We're both from Louisiana. Accent. We're both from yeah. the state of Louisiana. So did you, I didn't know this about you, but I knew this about Grant, that- Well, what? That you're both from the same town, but you didn't meet there, you met in LA. Right, well, we're from the same state. We're actually First from state. two opposite sides of the state. He's from Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is on the Texas border, mm -hmm. and I'm from New Orleans, which is kind of closer to Mississippi. So I'm over here on the cool side, and he's <laughs> off on that side. But, you know, we didn't meet until years later in Los Angeles, wow. another L.A. Wow. Louisiana, you know, is L.A. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, that was just a, a twist of irony there that, that's sort of cool because we both like crawfish. We both know about Mardi Gras. We're both Saints fans. I mean, it's just fun, you know? But you didn't give him an uh, attention that he, he wanted at first. He had to, like, call you several times. <laughs> yeah, he did. That's true. He had to apply his 10x uh, activity on you, but it worked. It worked. And he said, it's not stalking if it works. So, <laughs> you know, at our wedding, um, oh gosh, it's on tape too. I was like, <gasps> I was like, tissue, you know, secretly. But I was actually, during our wedding vows, I was saying, you know, I was, why didn't you find me sooner at, at our wedding? I was mad at him for, for, for waiting so long. Why did it take you a year and a month to, 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 to get me? Why did you let me push you away so long? Why didn't you find me 10 years sooner? But sometimes it's, it's when you're ready, right? You have to be yeah. ready for both for each other. Yeah. What, what made you create your own identity? And what I love about your message is that you can support each other because yeah. um, coming from the network marketing industry, there's a lot of marriage that gets broken in that industry because somebody or someone is a go-getter and the other one is the negative sayer. Like how you must be a super strong woman 
to allow your husband to go and not just allow, but like, like push him, push him to do all the things that he does and encourage him. And now you have that identity of somebody that's always supported their husband. That's literally like you're a badass. (laughs) (laughs) I try to be. I'm trying to be. Yeah. You know, um, I've always wanted support from, you know, from 17. Like I said, I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I was trying to be a model. I did model. I went around the world um, and acted. I was on several TV shows, episodic. I did a couple movies. And it's not hard. I mean, it is hard to find somebody who supports you and really encourages you, especially to be gone and this and that. So I have always understood never to get in the way of somebody's work because I've always understood what that meant to me and how people have tried to stymie me in the past, especially guys, you know, because because that's the kind of guy I dated back then. I, I only dated guys that fet, um, fell into the uh, they hold me back category because I had this idea about men that they hold me back. So I wasn't going to find a Grant Cardone when I lived with this with these goggles on that said men hold me back. Of course, I was attracted to the one that when I got with them, they held me back to make myself right that all men hold me back. So um, I don't know what I was saying about that. The support, <laughs> I guess I was saying that it's never been hard for me to support Grant because, because I know what it's like to not be supported. So um, I've never lost my identity. Even when I traded in my acting career in order to trade up for this empire, I didn't know where the empire was going. I didn't know I could get it to as big as it is now. I had, I had always thought so. I'm not where I want it to be. I still wanted to expand it and make it even bigger. Wow. But um, I've always had a strong sense of my identity. I needed to have more of my identity and be more confident in who I was when I had to go tell everybody I'm giving up my acting career because I'm going to go do this with Grant Cardone, my partner where everyone in Hollywood looked at me or I perceived that they looked at me like she's a sellout. She gave up her thing to go be with rich guy over here and have an easy life, which is not what I did. But had I not been the, the person that I strive to be, which is courageous and comfortable enough with who I am in my own identity to say, you know what, have your opinions. I'm still doing this. I could look like a complete dumb if this thing falls (laughs) out and he dumps me or leaves me for somebody else or it doesn't work out. I mean, you name it. I had the thought about it. Wow. You know, and finally, I I just went all in on myself. I went all in on us to say, you know what? If the worst case scenario were to happen, I always land on my feet. I'm a survivor. I'm not a victim. Things, bad things have happened to me. It still doesn't make me a victim. I'll always come out on top. I'll always find a way to climb to the top. And, you know, so we do support each other. And now I'm just able to be more apparent and transparent with who I am and have always been to be, but more importantly, who I'm constantly striving to be. I want to be, I still want to be this person. I'm only 15% of my potential right now. I'm very low where I've hit my potential. Wow. Wow. Okay. I want to dive deep into this because you just sealed the deal with this topic of 
I'm not where I want to be. You said that earlier. And I want it to be way bigger. But for a lot of us that looks up to you and Grant, it is massive for us, right? Yeah. And you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you guys have accomplished so much. But here yeah. comes Elena Cardone saying, I'm not where I want to be. Mm -hmm. It can be so much bigger. And then you gave me the number. You're only at 15% of your potential. Yeah. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. And it's why I'm able to come out now because I have some statistics behind me that are legit. And I recognize that. And so I'm able to come forward and say, hey, you guys can come on board now for the rest of the ride because of my interest in fast tracking your success. Anyone out there who... So yeah, that, that's my childhood. I would say that challenging, not privileged, definitely the antithesis. People, I think, make assumptions based on how I live my life now. Um, but my life has come full circle. And so for that, I'm very, very grateful. But it's been an effort. It's, you know, many years of therapy, talking about things, being very open about what needs to happen, what needs not to happen in our lives, and just being respectful of my spouse. I think, um, you know, when you grow up with parents that are verbally abusive, not only of you, but of one another, you just learn like, I don't want that dialogue. I don't want that kind of dynamic. I don't want that kind of relationship because that will be very destructive for me. So. Yeah. Not only for you personally, but also as your kids are growing up. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the environment that you grew up in and, and you create that I like to call a, um, incubator for your kids, mm -hmm. you know, that's essentially home is their incubator for their adult life. And if we show those things, and for me, I have a similar, you know, childhood like you, the thing that my father had taught me was the same, you know, they, they, every single one of us have a purpose in this life. Yeah. And my father served his purpose. Mm -hmm. He's still around. He lives in the Philippines. And his purpose was to make sure we don't end up with a husband like him, mm -hmm. you know? And, and that was really my, my goal when it came to finding, you know, settling with a man that I wasn't going to settle with a man like my father. Yeah. And I mean, I have a lot of anger when I was a teenager because it gets escalated, like the emotional feeling. Sure. When you're a child, you have no voice, right? Yeah. When you become you a teenager, you start finding that you do have a voice mm -hmm. and you start going against what you see that's so wrong. Yeah. And, and like you, I've been healing, but in, in our culture, we don't have such a thing as um, therapy. Okay. So our therapy, and there's not even like us siblings or six of us growing up in this situation, we don't even have a therapy session with each other you know, like conversations, but now we're like starting to, we love each other because we only had each other. Yeah. And no matter how far we live from each other, my brother lives in England. My sister lives in LA. My other sister and brother lives in the Philippines. Like we are constantly communicating every single day. And one day we were communicating about like when our spouses start screaming and changing their tone of voice, we just like crawl up like little yes. girls. Yeah, you shut down. Yeah, you yeah, because down. you go back to that mm -hmm. environment you were in. And I thought I was the only one that was like that and, until I started 
being open about it with my sisters and you know it's hard for us to be vulnerable with our family in our culture i don't know maybe that's the same way with your culture and so as we became older we started being vulnerable and with my own spiritual journey i'm like i'm okay with it and then once i i was vulnerable that i essentially gave them permission to be vulnerable yeah. and and we started talking about like wow we all have the same reaction because we all grew up the same way mm-hmm. so I want to talk about your mom and because you're very close, obviously, to your mom. Now, what kind of lessons, and you talk about the lessons from your father, and Tony Robbins says that if we are going to blame our, our parents with the bad things that they did to us, we should blame them for the good things that yeah. they also did for us. Absolutely. So, so what kind of good things did your mom teach you? Yeah, I mean, another thing about education, um, education was really important. My mother was very big on always remaining a lady that, uh, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and and let's be frank, growing up in the 80s in New Jersey, there was a lot of very unladylike behavior that I was witness <laughs> to. Uh, and yeah. so my mom used to always remind me that you always want to keep your dignity as a, as a lady. And she didn't mean to be prude. Uh, she just meant to be respectful of yourself and of others. Um, you know, she was, she's an exceedingly successful person. Um, and so, uh, you know, she taught me an appreciation for finer things. You know, she got more financially successful after I was out of the house. And I'm very, very proud of all the things that she's accomplished. But she's tenacious. She is just one of the most tenacious go, 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 go kind of people I've ever met in my entire life. So that strong work ethic has really been embedded in me that it's, it's not okay to say you can't get it done, um, you know, within, within the confines of what's realistic for you and your lifestyle. Right. But that tenacity, that grit, that, um, you know, desire for excellence, my mom really embedded in me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're very, very different people. Um, you know, I, I always say like, I look like my father, but I'm a good blend personality wise of both of them as I, my brother would probably agree with that as well. He looks more like my mom. Um, but yeah, it, I think that, you know, the Tony Robbins saying is so accurate because our parents do the best that they can, you know, the yes. more I understand about my parents upbringing, the more I understand and I can rationalize their own behaviors. They did the best they could. And I was grateful. I had food. I had food every night. I had shelter I had a home to go home. I had a place to go home to. Um, I know not so much my dad, but my mom. I knew that, you know, when I was, you know, everyone has struggles in college and, you know, after college, but, you know, I knew that my mom would always be there to talk to and and be support and to support me. And so a lot of people don't even grow up with those things. Um, And the other thing that, that I, my mother really invested in me is the value of family. And so that's why, you know, this, my, my, my grandfather was Italian. My grandmother was German and Irish. And so, um, I spent a lot of my summers with my grandparents in Colorado. And so a tremendous sense of family. So I'm very close with my cousins, very close with my aunts. Um, and you know, that's, that's a huge gift. I, you know, my, I married into a, a lovely family, but they don't, they don't, they're not as they're very, the nuclear family is their focus and not the extended family. So, um, right. I always say that for me, it, it's, it's strange to go visit a place where my husband's family is from and I don't see all of his aunts and uncles, but they're just not that way. Whereas Italians are all about connection and food yes. and, and those are the things that have really been, you know, kind of embedded in me. 
And I hope that, you know, we can kind of create those same experiences. Although my family and my brother's families are much smaller, we each only had two kids. Um, but I hope that my kids will have the same kind of, you know, connection with family, how important family is, you know, family by blood. Um, but obviously you're really lucky if you have family members you really like, and I've been really, really blessed. Like this past weekend, I was in Michigan. That's where my mom is, my stepfather and, and many of my cousins and, and one of my favorite people in the world, my aunt Carol, who's like a second mom to me. And so I got to see all these people and I, you know, I was thinking to myself on Sunday, I am so lucky. I'm just so fortunate because not everyone gets to have um, wow. yeah, these blessings. So anyway, that's, that's the, the point I wanted to make that I think it's really significant if your and parents can embed in you some of the values that you then pass along to your children. Yeah. My, um, so everybody that gets married t- to my family, cause I'm sort of like, we have the same values as Italian families. Mm-hmm. We, gather around food. Food is the center of the, of, yeah. of any kind of party. Mm-hmm. And it's not just food, but exorbitant amount of food. Yep. Oh yeah. That's the Italian thing too. <laughs> breakfast, lunch, dinner. And then when everybody goes home after dinner, we send them food yep. to home. Yep. So it's very like that. And a lot of drinking mm-hmm. around food. Um, so that's kind of how we are. And so the people that get married to our family tends to gravitate to our family more mm-hmm. because they see that camaraderie mm-hmm. within the unit. And mm-hmm. like you said, your husband's family is not like that. They're close, but they're not like on top of each other. No. Like my family they're, is like that. Yeah. They're very waspy. You know, it's all about like my family will, I mean, and my husband, who's a very affectionate guy, it completely freaked him out the first time he met Many mm-hmm. of my female families who kissed him on the lips, he was like, whoa, I'm not oh. used to that. I said, well, they're just very, I mean, and it wasn't inappropriate. It was right. just, they're very huggy. They're very affectionate. And so, you know, his very waspy family, it's like, you know, one of those very kind of obligatory hugs. It's like, don't uh-huh. touch me too much. And they're lovely people. It's just, you know, a waspy kind of perspective is that everything yeah. is prim and proper and everything that's in place, you don't yell at one another. Um, so it's interesting how we all grew up in different environments. And somehow Todd has kind of accepted that, you know, our house is a good blend of both. Um, good. But yeah. But I, I, can, I can appreciate, you know, Filipino culture if it's a lot like uh, an Italian culture because, yes, the food piece, there's always too much food. You can never have enough food. Everyone yeah. goes home with doggy bags. Yes. Uh-huh. I completely Very understand. Very Catholic. That. I grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. Me you know, too. It's, it's, that, it's that religion too. It's... Um, you know, with, with that culture, very Catholic countries. So why, and then you mentioned your mom is a nurse or was, yep. she's still a nurse. No, she ended up, uh, when she retired, she was CIO of a huge medical system. So she went from being a nurse to going into informatics and then kind of hit it at the right time and ended up at one of the big, at the time, one of the big seven wow. firms. And then, you know, it was at university of Pennsylvania and case Western and Henry Ford. And so she, became incredibly successful. I mean, she had no time for herself, but I think, you know, we left the house and she needed another hobby. And so that became her focus. Good for her. She is a mother hustler too. Yeah. Oh, she, (laughs) and she's very much, you think about it. She grew up in, you know, she was born in the forties, grew up in the fifties and sixties. And so that feminist kind of ideology really resonated with her. I would not describe myself as a feminist. I mean, I'm I'm very pro-female and all of that. But, um, you know, she 
she, she's a badass. She definitely <laughs> is a badass. I always say like, you need to tone it down, mom. Like just everyone in the Midwest is very nice. You just got to tone it down a little bit. Everyone here is super nice. Just tone it down. So, <laughs> so why nurse practitioner for you? Did you kind of get the wind from your mom with that? And- no, no. Um, it's funny. So when I went to undergrad, I was going to go to law school, got into law school. Um, Me too. Yeah. And one of the best decisions I ever made was not going to law school. I started Me looking too. at how much debt I was going to be in because Washington DC law schools are super expensive. And then I was looking at starting salaries and I'm like, mm, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And my parents were devastated because they're very achievement oriented. They're the kind of parents that when I was an undergrad, it was like, where are you going to grad school? My whole family's like yep. that, very achievement oriented. And, um, it's crazy. I'd always wanted a dog and I got a dog right when I got out of college and getting a dog changed my life in a wonderful way. I suddenly became very interested initially in veterinary medicine, but then I have terrible allergies. So that wasn't a a feasible choice. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school and took two years of pre-med classes and then was trying to decide between, you know, did I want to go to med school? Did I want to do like, did I want to become a PA? And then I had a professor who walked up to me one day and said, what the hell are you doing in this class? It was like a pharmacology class. And I explained it and he said, you need to become a nurse practitioner. And I was like, a what? I was like, I can't be a nurse. Like everyone, like both my grandmother, several of my aunts, my mother, I'd never even thought about going into medicine. And it was the best decision I could have ever made. I actually applied at the time I was really interested in HIV research and I was doing HIV counseling at a a clinic in Washington, DC called Whitman Walker. Mm-hmm. And um, my decisions were between two big schools, UCSF and Hopkins. And wow. um, I was like, if I get into Hopkins, I'm going to go. And so I did. And I was accepted into a, a so here's the, the backstory. If you want to become a nurse, you need an undergraduate degree in nursing. So I had to get a, another bachelor's. And then I went on and at the time, the end degree for a nurse practitioner was a master. So I was accepted into a dual program. And it was the first time in my adult life that I was surrounded by women that were as passionate about learning as I was. It was, and and these women are still some of my closest girlfriends. I get chills just thinking about it. That's how pivotal and crucial this decision was for me. I always call it one of my first left turns. And so I moved to Baltimore, which at the time was a total, pardon me, shithole. (laughs) Um, really was not nice at a highest rate of, of gun violence, highest rate of syphilis, teen pregnancy. I mean, yes. HIV infection, it was just not a, a nice place to be, but it was the best place I could have ever been. And so I was a sponge. I soaked everything up. I became an ER nurse. I went on to graduate school. I became a nurse practitioner. Um, and I know that's what I was meant to do. And there was no question that that How was- How did you know that? Because I was really good at it. Did you feel really? so at home when you, yeah. when you were surrounded with those women? Yeah. I mean, for wow. me, it was the intellectual stimulation. It was the camaraderie. It was the rigor. Medicine is a very demanding environment to work mm-hmm. in. Things change. They're not always predictable. I, could, I, could, I have the personality that I thrive on the chaos. So I loved sick patients. Me you get too. me in the ER, I loved it. You get me in the ICU, I loved it. And so that's why I thrived in cardiology as an NP. Um, but I think my real gift in life is my ability to connect with others. And so one of the things that was apparent to me, and and it's very hard when you're new at anything, we all have imposter syndrome. So whether it was when I was a new ER nurse or when I was working in cardiology as an NP, you go through a solid year or two feeling stupid, even though clearly you're not, you're clearly capable. And I remember, um, one of the physician colleagues who I, I still am very good friends with said to me, you know, you can take people that have 20 years of experience that can't critically think, 
You can take people who have lots and lots of accolades, but the real test of whether or not you're good at what you're doing is, are you calm and cool under pressure? Can you connect with others? That is far more important. So I stopped comparing myself to comparing myself so to the other nurse practitioners that had so much more clinical experience before they had become an NP. I didn't. I did a program where I'd only been a nurse for about three years. Um, and so it was really interesting to me that as soon as I made that switch in my brain, I was like, I am good at this and I'm going to be an incredible NP because I have things that other people don't have. What I don't have mm -hmm. in terms of um, years of experience as a nurse, I have so many other things that'll be beneficial. So that was my, that was a big turning point for me. Um, and I still identify as a nurse practitioner. I feel like I still use those qualities every day, although I left clinical medicine three years ago. Um, but there's not a second of any day that I regret that decision. It was the best decision I could have ever made at that time in my life. I always say there were two big left turns that I made in my life. They were the right turns for me, but they were not what most of my peers were doing. And that was the first one uh, for sure. Um, and I don't, you know, it's interesting how I just took this leap of faith. I was like, I didn't know if I was going to be any good at this. I took out huge loans to go to school, um, moved to a new city, dragged my little dog with me. Um, and you know, it was, it was clearly a pivotal, pivotal decision in my life and, and clearly the right one for me. I think that, um, what makes a difference though, is someone telling you like your, your, um, physician coworker mm -hmm. colleague planting the seed of in our mind, because it's all about mindset. You know, yep. I, I look back in every career that I've ever had. Like you said, you have doubts for yourself. You, am I good enough? Am I doing this right? And you know, there's someone in here that has an MBA or mm -hmm. something because I've always been in the business arena, whether I yeah. work for somebody or not. And and then here comes Kareen rolling in. Um, you know, I got my degree in the Philippines, so I have that comparison. Mm -hmm syndrome as well when I was early on um, in my career where I wasn't confident enough. Mm -hmm. And when somebody tells you that you're different, mm -hmm. it makes a difference when someone believes in you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I remember when I rolled into this um, interview and I was interviewing um, when I was in banking for a vice president commercial loan officer position. And I've had my degree for a long time by this point. And I go into this office to interview with the SVP in the bank. And he had so many piles of resume. Mm -hmm. And I walk in and, and he didn't even talk about work. Like he drilled me about something else. And mm -hmm. I was really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And like you, I'm such a connector. I love mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And I can have a conversation all day long. But when it comes to my work, I doubt myself, you know, yeah. like, but then I just roll, roll with a punch. And so he was like, you know, you see this stack of resume. They have a lot of these people have MBAs, but you have the experience. You don't have an MBA, but you have a degree. Mm -hmm. And what I'm looking for is someone that can swim a rough water and someone that can connect with people and just has a natural knack to connect with people. Mm -hmm. I don't need an MBA for that. That's and awesome. so, and so like every time I have doubts, when somebody tells me otherwise, 
it makes a difference. So having a leader around you too, and a mentor that tells you, look, this is what you have that those people don't have. Yeah. This is what makes you special and unique. And I think, you know, that's so critical, but I, I agree with you. And I think imposter syndrome, this is another thing people don't talk about. Imposter syndrome is common. Um, it's so common. I mean, there are key times in my life where I recall, um, just feeling like inadequate and it wasn't anyone doing that to me. It was me feeling like I'm stepping up my game. I'm doing what other people are not doing. I'm doing something different. Um, something that is maybe a little bit more courageous than, um, some of my other people that are kind of playing a little bit more safe. And it's, I don't say that to be judgmental. I'm just saying, um, the road less traveled in many ways is how I've lived my life. So. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's having the courage and the confidence that even if you know, some, some people might be judging your actions Mm -hmm. that you're okay with that and that you're confident that you're making the right decision because in your gut feeling you, it's so hard to talk to, by the way, to someone that has medical background and talk no. about gut feeling. <laughs> no, 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 but think about it. Your gut is your enteric second brain. So when people say my intuition, I just, I couldn't really, I couldn't tangibly say what it was, but they got butterflies or something didn't feel right. And I always say, that's your enteric brain. I mean, you need, that's wow. your second brain. You need to pay attention to that. And, and the one thing that I've learned more than anything is that um, I care a whole lot less what initials or degrees someone has. I really um, judge when I don't use, I don't use the term judge as judgment, but when I'm talking to someone, I take them at face value that um, I have met many people who have an incredibly impressive pedigree that are gigantic asshats. And then I've met (laughs) people that have just, are just like super down to earth, um, maybe they didn't go to college. Maybe they didn't have the ability to do that. Um, or they're just, you know, they just have more simplistic no resources. And, right. And I, there is no judgment on my part. I'm like, I judge you for who you are. Uh, that doesn't impress me. And, and anyone that gets impressed by a bunch of fancy degrees, you're missing the point. I mean, yeah, hundred percent. I love, by the way, how you look to the side before you say profanity words. Because <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> well, and it's funny, I, I'm being respect because I, I can imagine. I mean, I know you have boys. I know even though with earbuds, my kids uh-huh. are downstairs now, um, as are my dogs. And so I was kind of looking to the side to say, okay, I know one's in our dining room. And so I can kind of in the distance see him and the other one's in the kitchen. And sometimes yeah. they enjoy kind of listening to my conversation. So I try to be. Oh and, my and gosh. The, the word asshat in my house is, is a word that I will say in front of them and they know what it means, but <laughs> I remind them they're not allowed to say it. I'm like, sometimes I just have to say something. Um, well, you just have to be normal mom. I mean, right. I, I say those, you know, I say the bad words around them and they just yep. like, mom, yeah. Oh, they yeah. actually correct you and tell you, don't say that. That's really bad. I know. Well, and it's funny. <laughs> I grew up in New Jersey and so using forward expletives, not excessively can be, is something that can be therapeutic. And so, uh, I was telling someone the other day, anytime I, I do a white graphic on Instagram that has a curse word in it, sometimes I'll lose a bunch of followers and I'm just kind of like, eh, you know, it, this is who I am. I mean, occasionally yep. I will curse. Occasionally I will say things that are not appropriate within reason. Um, if you don't like it, then so be it. But yeah. They're not your people's sister. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yes. Just love on them from a distance and let exactly, them go. Exactly. Exactly. 
You said something about the imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. something got downloaded to me and I'm like, oh, that's why life coaching is thriving. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because it's so common amongst yeah. us. Yeah. Super I mean, common. yeah. And I mean, I have had it at very specific times in my life and I look back and it kind of makes me humored because to me, when I start feeling imposter syndrome, it's largely because I really care. I really yeah. care about that situation or I care about making a good impression. And that's when fake it till you make it. You know, you may be feeling that inside, but project confidence on the outside. Um, that's huge um, to, to recognize that people, even people who are middle-aged and experienced and have all these things going on in their lives. I mean, most recently, earlier this year, I, I did a talk and um, I was surrounded by incredibly talented speakers. And so we were practicing the day before the talk and I got up on stage and I completely choked. Oh man. And and my coach knew me and knows what I'm capable of. And so she was like, just start all over. And then I was fine. And I walked off the stage and I said, this is the most talented group of speakers I've ever been around in my entire life. And it was, I started to realize like, I'm now the little fish in the big pond, Yeah, which I was totally cool with, but I, I was like, whoa, like just this feeling of, <gasps> I mean, I need to nail it. Like I yeah. need to bring it and nail it and do it and show them what I'm capable of doing. Um, well, you, but, you start stressing, you know? Yes, I cared. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I so, cared. so let's talk about intermittent fasting because that's yeah. like- my the one that I've been waiting for, and I know a lot of my listeners because I've been yeah. enticing them you know, <laughs> during our for our interview and just mm-hmm. you know um, oiling them up so that they can they want to listen to our episode. But it has been a practice of mine for about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I didn't know when you break your fast, which I've seen and watched your. Um, viral video about your your most recent speech or mm-hmm. speaking engagement with TEDx mm-hmm. was that when you break your fast, you, you can't just eat anything. Okay. Right. And right. I think I feel like, um, okay, I've fasted now for a long time. I think I can have a donut. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think the way to think about it is, first of all, my mindset is always moderation, not deprivation. But think about what that choice will make you feel like 30 minutes later. Um, And so, you know, when intermittent fasting kind of fell into my lap, I know you said you've been doing it for about a year. I've been doing it for over two years. When it fell into my nap initially as a Western medicine trained provider, I was like, what? This goes contrary to everything I was taught, everything I bought into. Um, And I was struggling with, you know, just being middle-aged and feeling like I wasn't as lean. I've always been very fit, but just wasn't as lean as I like to be. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And then within a couple months, I was like, wow, um, I think this is the magic bullet, if you will, for not just men, not just women, but a huge population that largely is now morbidly obese um, and overweight. And so then it became kind of a crusade that, you know, I was going to talk about it, but I had no idea I would ever do a TED talk on it. Um, It's kind of a funny story how I got two TED talks kind of close together. Wasn't intentional, um, but the second TED talk I ended up doing, I had to come up with a topic on the fly because they don't allow you to do two talks on the same subject, which makes sense. Right. And so I said to my husband, this was like December. What do I know a lot about? 
it was like intermittent fasting. And so that was the pitch. And so I pitched the idea and then they wanted me to do it focused on women. Um, but what an incredible opportunity to really share something that to me is something I embrace, but also I think we're in a, a stage in, you know, consumerism where everyone's convinced they have to buy a pill or a potion or a powder yes. to make them healthier. And so that makes me absolutely crazy, like completely bananas. And so part of that, um, that talk was really about telling people like, let's get back to basics. You don't have to overthink this. This is free. It's totally flexible. You can do it on vacation. You can um, flip your schedule around if you're going out to eat or going on a date night. Mm -hmm. And that's really, uh, it, those common sense strategies are what I think people are desperate for. Not another diet plan, not another pill or supplement. You know, I interviewed- um, Expensive monthly subscription. Right, right. Well, I was, I was calling it the bucket of junk. We were on with um, a physician who, he's incredible. I'll have to tell you about him. And one of my favorite people we've interviewed on our own podcast, and I brought up the name of the product and he was like, oh, that's the worst. Um, and I said, I'm so glad another healthcare provider says that because I have people who come to me who want to work with me. And then the person down the street peddles this product and then they think it's the easy way out because then they can yeah. still eat junk and they don't have to do anything. But then when they stop buying the crap, then they're right back to where they were. And so- Well, that's was, the dream. That's the dream right. they are- selling is the mm -hmm. easy shortcut way. Right. You need a fat burner. You need, um, you need to, what did they, they call it like a detox product. And I'm like, okay. Um, so, you know, to me, it, it's really a crusade to help people live healthier lives. I just think we need to look beyond the noise and the crap and just get real, um, on so many levels. So I'm delighted that, um, your listeners are excited about this podcast because I'm so passionate about, you know, finding strategies that are real that people can really implement and do the rest of their lives. And in fact, I, I got a lot of angry <laughs> emails from people who are older than 70 because I, I gave some parameters in the talk yes. really just to be smart. Um, and then I had people who were like, I'm 75, I'm 80. I've been intermittent fasting for two years. I've never been healthier. And I'm like, listen, whoa, whoa, whoa. It is not a criticism. I just, as a, I'm a licensed healthcare provider. I don't want to get yeah. sued because I give you information that it's hurts protection. you. It's Correct. protection for and you. And so I said, that's why you should take it to your healthcare provider and talk to them, make sure it's the right strategy. But I thought I was so humored. They're like, hey, talk about limiting beliefs. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> um, it's not the right strategy for everybody, but clearly you're an outlier. And I think that's totally awesome. Keep up the great yeah. work. That's so cool. I just have a, um, I'm going to give you a topic for your next TEDx talk. I, okay. I love listening and I like extract these amazing ideas when I'm listening to someone talking and we talked about supplements and all these powders and, sh and shakes and all these stuff. And I think you should call your next TEDx talk, the new fast food. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'm actually, I'm going to write that down while I'm talking to you cause yeah, my because my mind is yeah, because right now, you know, uh, the fast food industry is actually struggling because mm -hmm. their sales have been going down because of revolutionary people like you and a lot of health and fitness. Do you listen to um, Aubrey Marcus, mm -hmm. you know, and he's healed himself. And like a lot of people are listening to more influencers than they are to their doctors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because obviously it's no longer... I think it's obsolete. And yes, we're still in the old age of the medical technology that, and of course there's pharmaceutical companies that kills you if you come up with something great. 
<laughs> well, and, and I think it's, it's tricky. So, so here's the, the most ironic thing. Um, I got sick earlier this year and was in the hospital yes. for 13 days. And so it's important that I, that I, I say this, there's a, there's a time and a place for Western medicine when you're, when you're sick, like acutely sick, acutely, you know, you have an, an emergency, you need surgery, you um, have a traumatic injury. Um, where I think Western medicine is really failing right now is chronic prevent, chronic and prevention of disease. So chronic management and prevention of disease. And, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has largely kind of hijacked Western medicine in many ways. And, and, and I say yes. this, and I'll give you an example, you know, until fairly recently, um, pharmaceutical companies weren't allowed to do commercials. Now they are. So the yeah. last few years I practiced, I would have patients come in and they would say, I have X symptom. I want this pill. And I'm like, but we don't really understand why you have that symptom. So maybe we need to look a little deeper before we put a Band-Aid on it. And so the pharmaceutical industry has largely convinced us we need a pill to solve our problems. And in some instances, we do. I mean, legitimately. Obviously, I would have died if I had not had um, the medical care that I have. So I don't want to be critical of that. But I think that we just need to be more thoughtful in the way that we look at health and the way that we look at wellness and the way that we um, you know, have discussions with our healthcare providers. Because I really do believe that the way that many of us were trained, we weren't, we weren't given the tools to be able to think about things from a different perspective. I mean, technically, I was trained as a primary care nurse practitioner. I've never practiced primary care. I wow. always did acute care. But the point of why I'm sharing this is that um, you know, there, there needs to be a new path. And so I, I think that there are a lot of, I, I call them the wellness warriors. I think there are absolutely people out there that are trying to disrupt things in a very positive way. Um, to shine the light on differing opinions and ways to look at things. So um, yeah. I just want to make sure I don't overlook the fact that, you know, I got a lot of questions about why was I in the hospital and um, I'm all fine now, but yeah. um, it's really important for people to realize there's a time and a place, but not necessarily in every place. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. We do need our emergency rooms. Mm -hmm. We need our stitches if we get cut yeah. We need, you know, things removed if it mm -hmm. becomes a problem. And there is definitely that place for, and, and I'm not qualified like you to, to really identify those, but I am just here to acknowledge that there is. But I think that would be come another viral video because you're going to get a lot of rat from <laughs> supplement companies. Oh yeah. Get you a lot of attention. Yeah. Bad, but as, as the Kardashian said, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Right. That is true. <laughs> that is true. And I'll tell you one thing being an introvert. Um, so, so the real reason why I did a Ted talk last year, I desired to do one was I wanted to push myself. I was like, I'm, comfortable talking in front of people, but to commit something to memory and deliver it on cue. And that would be, that would be really good for me to push myself. And so I was trying to explain to someone that that was my second Ted talk was far more intimidating. There was stadium seating and I could see all these people. And, you know, I walked off the stage. I'd only been out of hospital for you not get even, bigger. Yeah. Not, not even, <laughs> not even four weeks. And so, um, I, I had no idea that it would go viral, but I, but I think the concept, it goes back to the same thing. I think people are hungry. I'm sending it to you. You don't have uh -huh. it. So, so tell us where to find you, Amy. So the cookbook is everywhere books are sold. So I'm proud to say that um, it, it is even in grocery stores now, not every grocery store, but a lot of grocery stores. 
So you can definitely find it at Barnes and Noble and you can find it on Amazon. Um, so it's called Cali, Cali Flower Kitchen and like Cali, not Cali, Cali, C-A-L-I. And it's 125 recipes, um, wow. not necessarily pizza, but all using cauliflower. You would be amazed. I am living proof. I did not like cauliflower when I first started this journey. I, it wasn't a vegetable you found in my house. So I love it now. It's a staple. It's amazing. So definite, 